Father, we're grateful at the close of this day for the quiet to continue our studies. We thank you that the storm is passing, it seems, and uh, that it's replenished the earth. We thank you for that as a token of your grace, the way you replenish us through your word and spirit. And whether we are weary now or filled with bright anticipation for our studies, help us to be diligent, uh, that we might grow in the knowledge of our Savior and as to how we can best serve him in this world. And we pray it for Christ's sake. Amen. Last time we were together, we began this section, um, Biblical Perspectives for Pastoral Care, and we looked at discipleship. Uh, Discipleship, both in general and then particular, with respect to folks who are same-sex attracted. And we had a good discussion of that. Uh, Does anyone have any questions about what we did last week on that topic? Then this evening we take up um, the uh, uh, second part of these biblical perspectives on pastoral care, the question of identity or Christian identity. Um, And so that's where we'll begin. And the first thing that they notice effectively is that Christian identity is biblical identity. If we're to understand ourselves aright, uh, we have to uh, learn who we are um, uh, by turning to Scripture. But I love the way they put it. Um, They say in that first sentence, we must first and foremost reflect the basic building blocks of reality as described in the Scriptures. That's a great phrasing of it. Um, the, the, the more fundamental thing is that this is based in reality. Uh, this is the way things are because this is the way God created them. So it's based in reality, but it's a reality that, especially because of our circumstances, has fallen, uh, that wouldn't seem as clear to us w- without the light of Scripture shining on it to help us to embrace that reality. But the point that I'm making here is that this is a key conjunction. It it isn't saying that uh, we must first and and foremost uh, follow what the scripture says and that creates a reality for us. That's the way the world looks at things nowadays. They think that the way we think can create a reality for us. And Christianity is utterly opposed to it. The way I've put it before is that um, Christianity is rooted in reality itself. Um, But our understanding of that reality is guided by the word. But that means that ideology doesn't trump reality, but rather reality trumps ideology. If your way of thinking, if your scheme of thought doesn't fit with the way the world is, ultimately it is not only false, but futile. And Christianity is insisting that this is an insight into the way the world is, 
but it's one that we have because God was pleased to help overcome our darkness in the matter. So they then note that if we're going to think about who we are in a distinctively Christian way, uh, that we ought to um, follow the pattern of uh, uh, the history of redemption. And they note in the parentheses, that is to say, the, the ideas of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation are all going to be crucial to us. I want to talk about this more below. I agree entirely. That's the path to take. I'm not sure our committee has followed that path as diligently as it ought to have. Um, but uh, I think that that's certainly on the mark. Um, then they move on and they say that scripture begins with the affirmation that we're created in the image of God, male and female. Uh, this is Genesis 1, 27 and 28. Um, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And summarized in our confession of faith in chapter 4. Um, and... Um, they assert that this is the foundational reality of all human identity. Now, this is the first of three foundational realities that they identify in this section of the paper. They don't set them off as clearly uh, as they might have. Uh, they didn't number them, for example. But the first foundational reality is that we're created in the image of God, the second foundational reality, as we'll see, is that we're fallen, uh, corrupted, and in misery in this world as it is, as sinners. And the third foundational reality is for those in Christ, they're restored to the image of God in Christ. Um, everything that they say about uh, these matters is quite sound. But I'm doubtful about this way of organizing the material. And I'll talk about that in just a few moments. But the first thing to do is to affirm uh, the strength with which they insist on what the image of God means. Uh, they're, they're saying that um, this is who we are inherently. Uh, ontologically, it's a word meaning to have to have having to do with our very being. Um, they underline it further. It has to do with our essence. Now, an essence in this sense is something that is so a part of a thing that if it loses it, it's not that thing anymore. It's, it's utterly, uh, um, um, well, essential. It's, a, it's utterly necessary for the thing to be what it is. Um, and uh, thus, um, they say that um, our self-understanding is dependent upon God, who made us and sustains our lives. Again, I, I just want to comment on that. I think that's a fine phrasing. Uh, and clearly, they have in mind that it's dependent, our self-understanding is dependent upon God in two senses. It's dependent upon God in the first sense because the understanding is of the way he made us. And it would be a different understanding if he had made us a different way. 
back to underlining the point, this is what's real. But also number two, it's because the understanding is dependent upon his work in guiding and sustaining our understanding, holding us in the truth um, that he has revealed. So uh, very fine statements. And then they conclude this point here about the image of God, insisting that being made male and female is a part of that image, and therefore these categories are not merely cultural constructions. Um, these uh, are part of what it means for human beings to be in the image of God, is that they're created male and female. Um, they are, uh, they say, identities um, imprinted on us by the Creator. Um, I don't know really why, and here you'll get a running theme in our discussion tonight. I don't much care for the word identity in this context. I don't see why it's needed here. Um, the, uh, these categories, they say, aren't fluid. Um, they are, and why not just say created realities? Uh, that's surely what they mean. And the word identity now has become hopelessly mired in um, subjectivism, where my identity is something that I choose, something that I identify with. And it's so regularly used that way in our culture these days that uh, I think it'd be wiser to pitch the word altogether. But the point they're making is certainly sound. Um, uh, that the image of God is... Um, utterly foundational to us uh, thinking about ourselves and that that includes being made male and female. Now John Stadden, I'll note in passing here, he's the James B. Duke Distinguished Professor of Psychology and Neuroscience as well as a professor of biology emeritus at Duke University. He wrote a, a, a fine little essay uh, just recently Speaking of this question of male and female, I'll put a link to it um, in the chat uh, so that you can read the whole essay if you care to. Um, the, um, but here's what he had to say about this point. He said, biological facts are clear. All mammals reproduce sexually. Reproduction requires an egg and a sperm. The male supplies the sperm, the female the egg. There's no room for a third party. Male and female are it. That there are two sexes is biologically indisputable. That there are several minority variants in exercise is also indisputable. But sex is not a continuum. And I think that um, uh, that is indisputably true. It is also regularly um, rejected, not because it's been argued against, but because it doesn't fit the current ideology. But that is the reality of the circumstance. Now here also, I want to um, just pause for a minute and give you a sense of uh, the slight bit of dissatisfaction that I have 
in the way this issue is being framed under identity. Um, and I want to do that uh, by making reference to a wonderful book. Um, and uh, I'll put the um, a little bit about the fellow and the book in the chat. I want to talk to you about Thomas Boston. He was born in 1676. He died in 1732. He wrote a marvelous work um, called Human Nature in Its Fourfold Estate. Uh, the word estate here means a, a mode of being or a condition of being. Human Nature in Its Fourfold Estate. And here are the four estates. Uh, primitive integrity, entire depravity, begun recovery, and consummate happiness or misery. Now, uh, I think this is a, a brilliant analysis. Edwards highly regarded this book. He called uh, Boston truly a great divine. Um, but um, just to use his title and map uh, what our uh, report is saying. Um, for Boston, human nature, do you see, is one thing, the thing, and it can be found in four different estates or four different modes or conditions of being. Human nature, uh, Boston is, uh, by human nature, he's talking about being created in the image of God. So that map maps with our report. But these four estates aren't of the same kind of thing as being created in the image of God. Rather, they are four estates or states or conditions that a being created in the image of God can find themselves. And uh, our um, report picks up the second of the two, particularly focusing on it, entire depravity, and the third of the two estates, begun recovery, with a nod toward the idea of consummation. But because it doesn't keep them separate, I think it lends itself to confusion. So um, the, the point is this, that we're created in the image of God. And here we have to add something we talked about uh, in concise theology. Uh, when we talk about the image of God, um, there is a, a, a fullness of image uh, and a diminished image, or uh, sometimes they use the language of the natural image and the moral image. Uh, why do theologians talk this way? Well, the Bible clearly says we're created in the image of God. It also clearly says we fell and became corrupted, lost our uh, uprightness. But at the same time, the Bible continues to teach that we're still in the image of God, even in our corruptedness, uh, in, in our misery. So the point is that there must be some element of the image of God that is indestructible, unchangeable, and there's another element that is changeable, and that's 
what the language moral and natural was trying to get at. Often the idea of the natural image is that we're um, rational, volitional creatures um, and that we're creatures responsible for the consequences of our actions, that that is uh, the natural image that constitutes who we are. And then the moral image is to be created in uprightness. Um, The uh, way our confession of faith that they cite puts it, that um, after God uh, had made all other creatures, he created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, endued with knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness after his own image, having the law of God written on their hearts and the power to fulfill it, yet under the possibility of transgressing. Um, so the, the first part of, of that, um, the uh, reasonable and immortal souls and so on, is the thing that remains in every estate the uh, righteousness and true holiness um, is the thing that changes. And, uh, um, and so, by talking about estates in this way, um, the uh, older th- theology keeps what belongs together and, uh, because it's of the same kind. So, we would say, the essential humanity uh, is the image of God, particularly the image of God as rational, volitional creatures responsible uh, for their actions, made male and female. That's essential. That's indestructible. But then that beings created in that way um, also originally had moral righteousness. They were in God's uh, image with respect to their moral character. And that's how they were created. But then as fallen, they lost that uprightness and became corrupted and subject to the curse. With Christ, that image now is capable of restoration, liable to redemption. And in Christ, that image is renewed in the moral image that it lost. And then finally, uh, in the consummation, the estate of consummation, uh, there is the complete uh, uh, character of the image of Christ worked out in us and never to be lost again. Um, Now, the uh, further point is that with those categories, then... um, that belongs to uh, every human being are living in the context of these different estates. They may not be subject to them, but they live in the context uh, in one way or the other. Through Adam is created, in Adam is fallen, uh, in a world where the redemption is uh, uh, held forth by God in the gospel and who will in the world to come um, bear fruit of either uh, faith or continue in rebellion. But then there are other ways that we know ourselves. Um, And and those ways belong to uh, life in this world that are both changeable and varied uh, quite distinctly among people. 
whether I'm a husband or a wife, whether I'm a child, uh, whether I'm a brother or um, the, uh, I have a, a distinct family background, uh, different gifts and abilities, uh, the gifts natural perhaps, the abilities acquired over time, the kind of work and productive uh, labor that I undertake, uh, whether I'm a citizen and neighbor, uh, my particular ethnicity, um, the various providential circumstances that help to make up who I am in the, in these particular days, the things that I face that uh, you don't face, but they all have a way of helping to mold how we under, understand ourselves at a given time and place. Um, and the point is that no matter how different we are in all of those things, um, because we share in the essential thing, essential humanity, the image of God, and because we are undergoing uh, this um, uh, life in these four estates, either as those who have come through it and failed or who um, are, are looking at the possibilities of redemption, that means that... Um, we have a profound capacity to share in the life and experience of another. And it's what um, makes human fellowship and sympathy um, possible. But it's that framework that seems to me to be particularly helpful here. And um, not not to confuse things by somehow allowing um, our fallen estate and our redeemed estate to be put on the same level as uh, the Imago Dei or the image of God, which constitutes our essential humanity. Um, Let me stop there and let you ask a question. I hope that was relatively clear, um, but uh, it does seem to me worth at least uh, acknowledging that this difference is here and I think the latter way of framing it makes it more lucid. Um, Questions, comments? All right, well, it may be... Okay, wait, I I, I think I'm going to jump in here. This is Jenny. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Wow, that was a lot. And uh, that was a lot to take in. Um, I just have to say that. (laughs) So, um, reality trumps ideology. Right. And so, what we're figuring out as Christians, I'm just going to put it in that context, is what is reality as we're um, growing through our um, familiarity with God's word and our relationship with him and trying to conform or obey him or understand what he's requiring of us. Is that, mm-hmm. you, yes. is that a good... Well, and the, and the point is that we also learn from the world by paying attention to reality and... Here right. we're just paying and attention. I have that example of Schaefer and the, the the boiling water that he 
the guy said, I don't believe in pain. And he said, okay, I'm going to pour this plain water on your head. And the guy was like, oh, okay. But there's so many aspects to figuring out what reality is. And there are many ideologies that we live under that we don't recognize until we realize that we're following an ideology, not God's reality. Is that true? To some degree. I think in the main, any well-instructed Christian has the fundamental notion, just because of the way that the Bible unfolds itself to us. And we know these categories, creation, the fall, redemption, and consummation. We know that's the framework within which we live and so on. So it's a matter of working out the details. And I think intuitively we know that reality trumps ideology. That wishing doesn't make it so. But here we're talking about human sexuality and in particular same-sex attraction. Well, right now we're not. We're trying to lay out the framework for understanding what we mean by identity in this case. Right. But what we as humans do is we deceive ourselves or we make up our own reality, thinking that because I feel it, it has to be... Yeah, fallen people... Yeah, fallen people have that tendency. That's right. Okay. And then, so do you have time just to restate? I've got the Thomas Boston fourfold state or conditions, states or conditions. We've got number one is primitive something. Yeah, that's in the chat. If you copy out of it, you won't have to... Okay. We don't have to go over it again. Yeah. Okay. But I put it in a way that might be a little clearer. I said our nature as created, our nature as fallen, our nature as it's liable to redemption, and our nature as the consummation of redemption will transform it. Okay. All right. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Jen. Anybody else want to jump in here? This is more about the image of God. One thing I've been wondering lately is if as an American, I sort of have an expanded view maybe of image of God beyond what it is. And that's mainly because, you know, we have this idea that, and it's in the Declaration of Independence, that life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, that this is all part of our God-given nature. I'm just wondering if that's going beyond what the Bible says. 
Well, um, I, I think that the Declaration gets it right that we are creatures and um, we're creatures who are equally endowed with the image of God. I, I think that part of Christianity informs the Declaration. So we're, not, we're obviously not equal in, in almost every way that you can think about being equal. Um, the, we have infinite variations, uh, and those variations lead some people to be superior to others at, and other people to inferior, be inferior to others. We, so it can't be just a, a naked assertion. That was, would be a case where reality would trump the, the ideology. But it's actually a sound proposition because it has to do with being equal before the law, being equal in dignity, uh, being equal uh, in terms of our responsibility, of, uh, uh, of, of participating in fully in human nature uh, by God's gift. So then it goes on to say, and in, in, in due to the inalienable rights, among which they don't want to list them all, but they, they think that some of the chief ones are life, you have a right to life, a right to liberty, and a right to, to pursue your own ends, to to work and to labor and profit from your labor. And I think all of those things fairly are an understanding of what it means to be in the image of God. There's more to say, but I, I wouldn't say, I, I would say that rather than an inflated view, um, we probably have a view based on uh, the American heritage of Christianity and other views coming together in, in the 18th century that's um, more f fully wrought uh, biblically. Does that make any sense, Austin? Yeah, that's helpful. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Other? All right. Well, uh, I'll press on here. Um, the um, So... Um, now, where am I? I'm on page uh, 26 still, and um, I'm on the paragraph that begins, however, a biblical understanding of identity. And uh, this is where I've said that uh, I don't think this is helpful. I don't think we ought to confuse the fact that we're fallen and corrupted as if it's a similar kind of thing to being created in the image of God. Um, this is a changeable thing, and it doesn't change the fact that we're in the image of God, but it just it does change uh, the moral assessment that God makes of us. Um, nevertheless, the points they uh, draw out of it are very important, that though we're in the image of God, we need to be straightforward about the sin and misery of the fall that's a part of us, uh, that we ought to have a grief toward our own sin and the sins of others against us and the shared miseries of living in a sin-cursed world. So that is a reality, in other words, that we have to take seriously, uh, but we take it seriously as a state of affairs within which the creature uh, created in the image of God finds himself. And then third, and this is the one they think is most critical, 
is uh, another state of affairs, a state of affairs where one created in the image of God is brought to repentance, repentance and faith and is thereafter uh, being transformed into uh, the image of God fully or in the image of Jesus. And it's interesting that, uh, and, and this uh, shows you in part why uh, some in the Reformed tradition have um, gravitated toward this idea of natural and moral image using those thoughts then what, what's happening in Christ is the moral image is being restored to us. And um, the, uh, um, that is um, uh, spoken of, I don't have the text here handy, but um, that uh, when it ta- talks, when the text in Paul talks about um, uh, being restored to in, in righteousness, um, no, I thought surely I had that text. Um, um, well, I have to dig it up. But uh, in any case, this is um, something that uh, they can't, get into at great length as they notice at the bottom of page 26, but they want to make a few observations with respect to it. First of all, they insist that um, the uh, we're being made right, just we're justified in Christ by virtue of his righteousness and not our own. Uh, it's an alien righteousness. Second, that we're being conformed more and more to the image of Christ uh, through uh, the presence of Christ uh, with us in and uh, by the word and spirit and that we will finally persevere uh, and uh, be glorified because of our union with Christ. And so that reality of union with Christ is very powerful. And here let me draw your attention to the footnote on page 54 uh, citing Sinclair Ferguson in a book on Christian spirituality and I think this is a very provocative statement. Um, the, um, he said, our idea of uh, um, sanctification is not by what we have done, but what God has done for us in Christ. And uh, so here's the sentence. Rather than view Christians first and foremost as a microcosmic con- in the microcosmic context of their own progress. That is just the little tale of our lives and trying to live faithfully to God. The reform doctrine first of all sets it in the mi- macrocosm of God's active activity in redemptive history. It looks at the whole of redemptive history and the, the fall Christ's redeeming work, the building of the church, and the holding out of glory. And from that point of view, we see ourselves as a part of that story. 
It enables the Christian to grow in true holiness because he sees himself uh, not as this struggling, minute, um, benign, uh, benighted creature, but he sees himself as one called of God in the context of this great work that God himself is doing in human history. That's a very powerful uh, point, I think, that um, uh, Dr. Ferguson is making there. But in any case, on to um, uh, the the, uh, second part of our treatment tonight, uh, having looked at biblical identity, now sexual identity. How then uh, should we think about sexual identity? Uh, And especially Christians who have same-sex attraction, uh, how uh, should they think about uh, their sexuality? Um, In what way might that uh, shape their thinking about identity? And um, the first thing they say is that um, all people, by virtue of being created as image bearers of God, um, the uh, uh, how they experience their sexual self doesn't change that at all. In other words, no matter how they conceive their sexual identity, it doesn't change the fact that they're creatures created in the image of God. It's back to the idea of reality trumps ideology again. Uh, Thus, all people, including same-sex attracted people, are worthy of dignity and respect as image bearers. Uh, And they should never be um, uh, the subject of violence and hatred and uh, all kinds of miserable ways of treating fellow creatures created in God's image. and particularly with re- in respect to the church, they insist, there's no place for a second-class citizenship. All those who repent and trust in Christ and seek to live according to his way uh, are fully church members, no matter what their particular uh, struggles are. Um, and further, they argue um, that uh, the doctrine of creation, and here's a very important point, um, Any sexual or gender identity that relativizes the reality of the male-female binary as the ideal of creation necessarily undermines the biblical understanding of sex. Very important assertion, and one that's uh, full full stop uh, under assault um, today, um, that... People don't want to have anything to do with such a thought. But I think they're entirely right that this is an implication of the doctrine of creation. They note that there are, in fact, in a fallen world, cases of ambiguity and uncertainty. But this is part of the misery of a fallen world. And that doesn't negate God's original binary design. Uh, uh, They can't get into all the pastoral issues surrounding it but they offer the counsel that um, in these very hard cases, uh, each one should try and live out their biological sex insofar as it can be known. Um, Continuing on, uh, the uh, 
they want to insist that as we consider our fallen condition, same-sex attractions uh, having their um, uh, fruit in behaviors that God has forbidden, uh, therefore they are sinful desires, part of the indwelling sin uh, that remains in all believers. Um, and it, the same uh, argument would be true. Any uh, Christian that experiences a- any desire for something that to fulfill it would be to break God's law, well, they too should understand that um, they need to put that desire to death and reject it. Uh, regardless of whether it's with respect to the same sex or the opposite sex. Um, Let me pause there for those two points and see if there's anything that um, anybody wants to raise. All right, down at the bottom of 27. um, They... uh, Here I'll just offer my little demure again. uh, However, we must also acknowledge the ways in which our sexual identities are shaped by the sins of others against us as well. I just will stop us there. Why say sexual identities? The whole time they've been talking about desires. Uh, Why not say appetites? To introduce the word identity there uh, shifts away from the solid arguments they've been posing and introduces this confusing term. Um, So, uh, I'd prefer to say, we must acknowledge that our sexual desires uh, can be shaped by the sins of other people against us, as well as other ways that the fall shapes our our biological and uh, social development. These are two very important points. They're, They're saying that I can be sinned against in such a way that it has a deleterious effect to lead me to a person who has these uh, illicit desires. And they also want to say that in a fallen world, both uh, our, bi- our biology and our uh, uh, ill-practiced uh, social development can also be part of what leads a person to have those desires. Um, and it's in part uh, that accounts for why some um, experiences of sexual desire come unbidden. Uh, and uh, they say there ought to be great sympathy and pastoral care, especially for folks who have been sinned against, and uh, to realize that the origins and development of sexual desire remain complex and in many ways mysterious. Uh, the article I gave you from Dr. Statton, Statton uh, he has a sentence that puts this point nicely. He says, the causes of the different variants of sexual behavior are uncertain. No doubt, cultural as well as biological, that is genetic and developmental factors, are involved in a still unknown mix. I think that's a pretty fair statement of uh, where we are in trying to understand the phenomenon. But uh, the the report follows on with another very important statement. 
and, and this is worth getting, it is possible to conceive of the experience of the same-sex attracted, uh, uh, experience of same-sex attraction as simultaneously a part of the remaining corruption of original sin, as well as the misery of living in a fallen world, one of the ways our bodies themselves are groaning for redemption. In other words, uh, there, it's possible that two things are going on in a same-sex attracted person. One is they do have the sinful uh, attraction uh, that they need to repent of, but part of what contributes to them having that uh, may well be uh, abuse in the past or other ways in, in which um, the occasion for the sin is not the same as just unmitigated uh, sinfulness. Now, this sentence, I think, the possibility that the committee acknowledges here, I, it, I think it's going to be controversial. But I would say in the very least, in the light of what we know about post-traumatic stress disorder, I don't see how it can be denied that uh, traumatic circumstances can lead a person uh, to fall into patterns of life that are sinful. And we need to be very uh, tender and careful and look for remedies beyond just do what's right. Uh, because um, what's keeping a person from doing right is way more complicated than simple wanton disobedience. Um, so they insist um, that for many of these Christians, uh, what they need from pastors and mature believers is uh, a living out of the grace of the gospel that frees us from guilt and shame. I'll just note that the, in the parenthetical at the top of page 28, uh, where they cite Romans 8.22, Confession of Faith 6.6, and then WLC, that would be Westminster Larger Catechism. That is almost certainly wrong. It should be Westminster Shorter Catechism 17 to 19. Um, let me pause there and see if you have any um, concerns. This is Paul. I just wanted to make sure I understood what you just said. You said that phrasing could be controversial. Is that because it, it potentially suggests mitigating factors that are... Yes. ...could be viewed as lessening the culpability of... Yes. Okay, thanks, just want to make sure. Um, Dave, can I ask a question? Yes, uh-huh. Um, so, uh, the what you're talking about is um, the way people are brought up, right? Um, in part. In part, yeah. Where, there are three things particularly that they're identifying. Biological causes developmental causes, in this case not abuse or sin against you, but just uh, things that didn't go the way they were supposed to go as you were developing. Uh, uh -huh. And then three, abuse. Okay. So if we, if we just for a moment take it out of the, maybe the sexual abuse element of that last category and put it into like, 
being brought up with the very um, physically violent, not sexually abusive parent, but physically violent. Yes. That seems to carry on also. Yes, yeah, sure. It'd be the same and, kind of observation. It isn't just uh, being an angry or violent person, but it, it, it's profound harms that were done by those who should have done otherwise that helped to create right. the state of affairs in a person's life that where they would embrace that. Yeah, it seems to help. I don't know. You probably could state it better. It, it could also be verbal abuse. And so oh, yes, oh, yeah, absolutely. In the next generation also. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so it, it it's um, it's many kinds of sin, like we've um, observed before, um, that it isn't just the same-sex attraction right. issue that is the problem. That's right. Yeah. And in no case are we saying uh, that this state of affairs excuses it entirely, or that a person could then just go ahead and live in the fruit of that. No, it's still sin. You've got to repent of it and so on. But the strategies for bringing grace to bear and helping a person work through that would be markedly different. Yes, right. Okay. Thanks. All right. All right. Um, so we're on page 28. We're... Um, I think at the first full paragraph, um, the um, they say that um, the same-sex attracted folk must submit their sexual identity to the greater allegiance of being in Christ. Now that's a fine statement. I I would put it different. I would say they must submit their sexual desires to the greater. Uh, allegiance of being in Christ and conformed to his image. But in any case, but I would also say this, and this is also worth uh, the suggested read, uh, adjustment in format. Um, I would say also that same-sex attracted people have to submit uh, to their greater identity as being in the image of God as either male or female. Um, so I, I'd say it looks both toward redemption, but it also looks back toward creation, that the same-sex attracted Christian has to say, nonetheless, uh, I am made in God's image, and that means either as male or female, and that I have to learn to embrace uh, that creation reality. Bonnie? My question um, is the reason that they're using the word identity because of the cultural use of that when they say the person identifies as male yes. or a person identifies and it, are they endeavoring just to use the terminology that is commonly used whereas what you're saying saying the desires is a more precise and accurate description of what actually it is. That's right. Rather than the other. Okay. That's right. And I think our committee, I I think our committee clearly believes that, 
Um, so, so that I just think it's a, it's a mistake to go along with contem- uh, contemporary terminology because it, it too much liable to uh, um, mislead with respect to what we're trying to say. It's, uh, it's making me think when Bill was commander at Baltimore Air Force Base, he had four rules, and one of the ones words are important. And so I always think, well, word, his, his staff used to laugh because he'd say, okay, what does that word really mean? So <laughs> this is a really good example of what do we really mean by that, and how are we communicating accurately Yes. what that is. But the committee's point is sound. That I want to keep underlining. They're saying that uh, the same sex attracted uh, with respect to their union in Christ, part of the outflow of that union with Christ is they submit their desires to their allegiance, greater allegiance to being in Christ. And and then I want to add to that, that they also must submit to their greater identity and being in the image of God as created as either male or female. And that too should be part of uh, the dynamic. Um, and this, the, yeah. Oh, go ahead. You finished your sentence. I, I was going to press on because I'm running out of time. But if you, oh, sorry. No, that's all right. If you need to. No, um, well, I don't need to. But no, no. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, just an aside that I mentioned to you this week. I watch a lot of archaeology programs. And they, when they are digging in the dirt and they, they're finding evidence of civilizations, they have a person there who can identify pottery, all the different eras. They have a person that can identify metals, a person that can identify lots of things, and often bones. They find human bones. And the thing is, is that the bones themselves, even if they're 2,000 years old, a bone expert can can identify a male and a female. Right. right. That is reality. Right. And e- even by just, they don't have to do any of those DNA or, you know, tests on them. It's the pelvic bone often that tells whether it's a male or female. And so if a person now in the 21st century identifies, is born a male and identifies a, as a female, if they're dug up 2,000 years from now, they're still going to be a male. Yeah, yeah. And that that's part of what I was trying to get at by adding that little addendum, that it's not only submitting to Christ, but it's submitting to God as creator uh, in right. the image of God being as uh, either male or female. And so that person in this 21st century is living in their own imagination, not in reality. Well, yeah, yeah but and, again, remember, we don't know all the reasons for that. Um, well, but yes, but I mean, in rea- we're talking about reality. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's all. All right, thank you. Um, the um, all right, let me uh, press on here. Um, uh, I've lost my place. Um, uh, 
Boy, there's some fine thunder and lightning outside my window. (laughs) Um, All right. Um, So, implications of this. Um, And they're nice points. First, it means our personhood is not found in our sexual desires, but rather it is by being justified, sanctified, and glorified in Christ. Amen. Uh, Second, it means our union in Christ should shape our attitude uh, with respect to sexual desires. Uh, And that ones that are inconsistent with God's design need to be resisted and put to death and, and certainly not celebrated or accommodated. And third, it means that as new creatures, uh, we're being conformed to the image of God and we can expect that there would be some measure of growth uh, in that new creatureliness. Uh, all of this looking forward to the new creation and to our new creation self, when we'll be fully purified from sinful desire, uh, rather than looking backward at our Adamic and fallen selves. Um, But for all that being true, nevertheless, being united to Christ doesn't eliminate the experience of living in a sinful world. We live, as we've heard developed at some length in the tension between the already and not yet. Um, And thus, we all have to be honest about the present fallen realities, as well as our hope uh, for sanctification. But in any case, certainly our churches ought to be places where believers can find refuge and strength in looking for the long obedience of discipleship to Christ. Well, let me close here. Uh, uh, let's see here. I've got one more thing to put in the chat. This is a link to an essay that I found quite provocative. And I wanted to con- conclude this discussion about identity um, w- with a, a very interesting implication. You might know that it's very popular these days to say that people of one sort uh, shouldn't uh, embrace any of the cultural forms of people of another sort. It's looked on with disdain uh, as cultural appropriation. And I hope you've already begun to see that... um, uh, our essential humanity created in the image of God and the fact that we go through as human beings this fourfold estate regardless of what our differences are and that the differences have only have to do with um, how we work out what is more abiding within us and in the circumstances that we're in. Um, and that therefore uh, we actually have a way of sharing in the life, the joys, the sadness of all kinds of folk. And this is one of the beauties of the Christian understanding of the world. And so here's the concluding uh, paragraph from this fellow, uh, a PhD from the University of Aberdeen in historical theology named Aaron Dengliger. Um, Cultural appropriation would seem 
in the end to be written into Christianity's DNA. No need, so far as I'm concerned, for Christians to apologize for what modern moral, uh, apologize for that, regardless of what modern moral tends uh, lead to. Uh, No need either, to be clear, to be calloused or insensitive to the experience of any particular people or group. We can rather politely insist that our shared humanity permits us, indeed requires us, to understand the experiences of people that differ from us in gender, ethnicity, age, etc. The universal category that encompasses us all, namely image bearers of God, ultimately trumps particular identities and gives us the right to claim some level of first-hand knowledge and experience of other people's stories. We can, more to the point, insist that genuine hope and identity in this world are, in fact, ultimately discovered in the appropriation of a particular first-century Jewish man's name and history as our own, and in the subsequent appropriation of that man's national history and the promises made to that man's ethnic forefathers. That specific instance of cultural appropriation is no crime. It is, rather, our only hope for true forgiveness, true identity, meaningful inheritance, and good music to sing. (laughs) In other words, the Psalms. I I thought that was uh, a very fine note to end on. Um, Next week, we're going to follow up on this, uh, talking about uh, the terminology we use. And we've already started to talk about terminology, even trying to uh, get through the discussion of... um, identity, but uh, we'll finish up with that uh, in that week. Anybody a question or comment or concern about anything from tonight? All right. Um, I'm not seeing anyone. Want to get the floor? Well, I hope um, you'll have the opportunity to think further about these things and uh, that it wasn't um, too dense for a stormy, (laughs) uh, nearly summer evening. But uh, we can talk further as you will. So don't hesitate. If you have a a further question, to either email me or or to uh, hold it for next week. Let me pray for us. Our Father, um, these are great issues and uh, they're fraught with emotion and anger and alienation. But um, you've said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And we pray that though we would stand for the truth, we would do so in a way that's peaceable, like Uh, James speaks of in the wisdom that is from above and that you would use us uh, in our uh, homes and our families and our communities and our workplaces um, to be uh, those who speak the truth in love and we ask it for 
the sake of the one who is the truth and who loved us and died for us and now lives for us. Uh, and we pray this in his name. Amen.